Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. Uh, we were supposed to start Aleinu last week and I got derailed as I sometimes do. So let's really ju- dive into Aleinu today. So we're on page 160 in the Sim, 83 in the Slim, or wherever you have Aleinu in your Sidur. And we said last week, and I'm just going to say this by not to recapitulate everything, but by way of preface, that the first part of Alenu reads and sounds like um, a liturgical poem or piyut typical of an early-ish period. Scholars debate about that early-ish period of that poetry, third century, fourth century, fifth century, Right. And you hear it in the rhythm. It's four words on each half line, and the half lines are usually parallel. Which is either three words because the words are a little longer, Goralenu and Hamonam, or it's three words because it sort of actually ends this rhythmical part of the piyut, and so the literary rhythm structure is broken to, or changed to communicate, to tell you that we're coming to the end, because then beyond that, it's the rhythm of it is different. And again, in the probably Gaonic period, which means the late centuries of the first millennium of the Common Era, this was attributed to Rav, first-generation Amora. Um, in Babylonia, first half of the third century. Um, but that is not mentioned in the Talmud at all. And so that's a traditional attribution, which modern scholars would say is probably incorrect. But the poetic rhythm is sort of of that era. So let's dive in and look at the content of Aleinu. Aleinu l'shabeach l'adonakol. Literally, we, we translate it as it is on us, but that means it is incumbent on us. It is our obligation. It is on us in the English idiom, you know, an idiomatic thing. Aleinu is actually not idiomatic. It's perfectly good Hebrew, right? It's formal Hebrew, right? So we are, we must praise the master of all, Adonakol, um, to give greatness, which means to say, attribute greatness, which means to say, oh, you are great. Okay, means to express greatness, to the creator of creation, the fashioner of creation. So this sounds like it's parallel, right? Lishabeach is paralleled by Latekidullah, Adon Hakol, we think is synonymous with Yotzer Breshit. Um, later on, maybe today, I'll share with you a view that these are not synonymous. Adonakol and Yotzer Breshit, they're not just random, nice epithets for God, but they actually have a very specific meaning which might contrast with each other. I'll come back to that. And notice, just poetically, literarily, Aleinu governs both halves of the line. I think in math, they would say it's distributive, right? So it means Aleinu l'shabeach l'adon hakol, Aleinu la tekidolali right? So if Aleinu 
So Aleinu governs both halves. But because in good Hebrew, you only need to say that once. And if you say it twice, you sound like you're in first grade in Hebrew. <laughs> so because you don't repeat Aleinu, that's why the parallel for Lishabeach is two words, right? Because the poet needs four words in each half to be balanced. So Lishabeach is parallel to Latet Gedula. Surely the poet could have thought of a one-word synonym for Lishabeach, but the poet had to think of a two-word synonym for Lishabeach, right? Because he's missing a word because Aleinu doesn't get repeated because it governs both halves. All right? Why? Why should we really praise God? Shaloh asanu who did not make us like the nations of the lands, which means other nations, Vilo Samanu Adama, and did not make us Lo Asanu Lo Samanu, parallel, Adama, the families of the earth, meaning who did not make us like the other nations, the Gentiles. By the way, Goy in the Bible just means a nation. So occasionally in the Bible, Israel is referred to as a goy, goy echad ba'aretz, a distinctive nation on our planet. I can't remember where the phrase comes. It's in the Sidur. It's only in rabbinic times that goy comes to mean someone from the other nations. Okay? So goye ha'aretzot means the, the nations of the lands, which implies the other lands. Everyone with me? And also when uh, Larry, when Larry for for Haftara Plethora, okay, this is one of my little, this is one of my little pet peeves. When people read um, Haftarot, they're usually from Ezekiel who uses the word, and it comes across the word Goyim. They say, unless you're sort of trained and pay attention to Haftarot, they say Goyim, and Goyim is not a Hebrew word. Goyim is a Yiddish word. The Hebrew word is goyim. It's sort of an intuitive thing that people do. So when you're reading Haftarah from Yechezkel, the word is goyim, and it means the nations. Okay? So we got to praise God, because he did not make us like the other nations. I'll try to be non-gendered, because God did not make us like the other nations, although the the author of the Sidur definitely is thinking of he. Shalosam chalkenu kahem, like, what would be so bad about being like the other nations? Like, why would we thank God for that? Because God did not make our portion, chalek, like theirs, and our goral, which means something like destiny, like all of their masses, right? Because our portion and our destiny is not like theirs. This is about Jewish chosenness and distinctiveness. And that is something that bothers a lot of people of the Aleinu, and we'll get to your being bothered by it later. Right now, we're just trying to understand. Now we have a sentence that we take for granted, but that's a little odd in structure. We'll point out the oddness in a moment. And and it's clearly not part of the 4-4 poem anymore. The 4-4 poem ends here. 
end of that little piyut, that little literary structure. Notice we have a we have three triples. We bend the knee and bow and acknowledge or thank. That's a triple. Before who? Melech Malchehamlachim, the King of the Kings of Kings, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy. Some people, the old-fashioned translation, the Holy Blessed One, or the Holy Blessing One, the one who's infused with blessing. Okay, so we. I'm going to translate more literally. Va Anachnu, and we kneel, bow, and acknowledge before the King of the Kings of Kings. The Holy Blessing One. Um, the Persian kings, one of their epithets was they called themselves the Persian emperor, I should say, in the Babylonian period. Remember, we say the Babylonian Talmud because they were in Babylonia geographically, but they were actually ruled by the Persians, which had, you know, conquered the, um, the uh, Middle East in the several hundred years before. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the in the in the 500s BCE, okay. So just the confusion about that. It's one of those confusions, like you know, Syrian Greeks with Hanukkah, right? Are they Syrian or are they Greek, right? So they are live in Babylonia, but they're under the Persians. Um, so the Persian emperor referred to himself. You know, emperors always have um, lots of epithets: Lord of Upper and Lower Egypt giver of life, etc. So the Persian emperor, one of the Persian emperor's epithets was Melech Hamlachim, king of kings, because it was an empire. So there were various kings at various kingdoms that were conquered by the emperor of Persia. Sometimes they were allowed to keep a king, but he was a vassal king to the emperor. So he was called the king of kings. So then the Jews in this period came up with the epithet for God. God is the king of kings of kings, which means God is the king over all the emperors of the earth. That's what the idea behind this. It's like, we're going to take your title and we're going to up you one higher, one level higher. Okay. So, um, so here's what's curious. Up until now, we had balanced sentences we praise the da-da-da-da, because not made us like the other nations, didn't make us like the other nations, didn't make our portion like theirs, didn't like make our destiny like theirs. And we bow before the king, the king, the kings, the holy blessing one. So it's a little odd. It would be sort of like a therefore or and so we. Um, why does it start with va-anachnu? Now, I know va, the vav, the conjunctive of does duty for multiple things and, but, or we know that, but still what's the and here. So anyone who has davened or davens at times from either an Orthodox Sidur or an Israeli Sidur knows the answer to this question. What is the answer to this question? Why is there an and? Because of the missing words. Language. Because we have a line missing. Yes. Right. Uh, it is a line that has been censored out of the Sidur. So, so that line is, I got my Sidur in front of me, my Renat Israel, so I'm not doing it from memory. That line is, She, Heim Mishachavim Lehevel Varik, 
umit palalim el el lo yoshia. For they worship emptiness and nothingness, and pray to a God that cannot save them. Okay, so that is a line that traditionally was in the Alenu from the beginning. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about the censorship. We'll get to that. But with this line, then it literally makes more sense. So, so I'm not going to repeat all the words. I'll just give you the lead-in word in the English translation, right? We thank God who did not make us like the other nations who makes our portion separate from them. What's the big deal? I mean, like, so why is that a good thing? Shehem, because they worship useless deities. Va'anachnu korimu mishachavim. This vav is then, would then be translated as but, or maybe in slightly fancier English, while. For, right, we, we acknowledge God who didn't make us like the, like the Gentiles. For, they worship useless, empty gods, while we bow down to the king of kingdoms, kings, the holy blessing one. That makes sense. Um, you might not like it, and a lot of people don't like it, and a lot of people would feel uncomfortable saying it, so that we're going to talk about that, I promise. Um, but that's actually traditional in the Alenu. Now, there, through the centuries, there were various, in the Middle Ages, various Jewish, we call them apostates. If you were a Christian, you would call them a convert, right? There were various Jews who converted to Christianity who said, you know, the Jews in Shul, they trash your God. Part of their prayers is to say that your God is nothing. And actually, they also made the following claim. They claimed that El El Lo Yoshia, a God who cannot save, is an explicit reference to, say it out louder, Jesus, Jesus, whose Hebrew name is Yeshua, Savior, uh, you know, the saving one. It's, it's really sort of similar name to Yehoshua, which just means God saves. Jesus had a nice Jewish name, Yeshua, which ended up in most Jewish sources being um, shortened to Yeshu, right? So if you read uncensored versions of the Talmud or rabbinic sources, the censored ones changed it, but the uncensored one manuscripts uh, refer uh, refer to them as Yeshu. That's that's what we say in modern modern Hebrew. The, Jesus is Yeshu, but it's short for Yeshua, uh, which is the same name as Yehoshua. Um, nice Jewish name. And the allegation was, it's not just that they say you worship no gods, but they actually use the name of the Christian God to say he's no God. Also, Varik, Varik, they worship emptiness and nothingness. The gematria, or the thing about the letters of Varik, adds up to the gematria of Yeshu. Yeshu is Shin is 300, and Yud is 10, and Vav is six, which makes 316. 
and Varik, Resh and Kuf is 200 plus 100, which is 300. And it also has a Yud and a Vav, which is 316. So they said when they're really saying those other nations, Christians, bow down to emptiness and then a coded gematria numerical word, Varik, um, which is 316, same number as Yeshu, Ve'el lo Yoshia, and this God, which you say is the savior, does not save. That's what they're, that's what those Jews are saying in their prayer every single day. Remember, Aleinu used to be a prayer at the beginning that was only once a year on, well, I guess three times a year, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, three days a year. In the earliest Sidurim, it only becomes an everyday prayer, you know, sometime after the turn of the millennium, maybe 11th, 12th, 13th century-ish. So at a certain point, there are apostates who become Christian, who report to the Christian authorities that the Jews say this insulting line. By the way, I'll have to go back and look at the article because I haven't read the article in two years. But um, there's some gematria or numerical value of some word where some word in this formula also could be the same numerical value as Muhammad. So it's an equal opportunity knock on the Christians and on the Muslims, the two Gentile worlds in which the Jews lived. Don't try to find it. It's a really complicated one. I'll find it for you. Okay. Because it's a very non-intuitive one. So this was an allegation. So there were various attempts throughout the Middle Ages to censor this line out. There are various Christian authorities who tried to censor it out. Um, there was another allegation made. So reek, they, they bow down to nothingness. Reek comes from the word rake, which means empty. But it is also similar to what Hebrew word did Vered go away? Vered went away, she's not there. Um, Laroque, or Larik, Laroque, means to spit. So they also claim, and when the Jews say this line, they spit, right? Remember, the ground was dirt, right? Uh, So the Jews say, the allegation was, and the Jews say, for those Gentiles, bow down to gods that can't, that do nothing, patu, right? It's like you spit when you hear something bad. So that was part of the allegation. Whether the Jews did spit or not, whether that was a minhag, I don't know. Finally, in the year 1701, I know this because I read an article, there was actually a court case in a German state. I can't remember. It's like, you know, Saxony or Hamburg or one of those semi-independent German states before Germany was united. There was a court case in which it was decided as a government edict that the Jews could no longer in their synagogues say this line which in which they would curse and spit when they said Jesus's name. Think of 1701. From then on, this line was censored out from most Eastern, from most European Sidurim, even though Germany didn't rule Poland or Russia, there ended up being sort of self-censorship because, you know, so this issue had gone on, I think since the 13, I think the first allegation about it was in the 1300. So this is an issue that percolated for several hundred years. So finally there was this court decision. um, And from then on, it was censored out in some Sidurim, they put in like an ellipsis, dot, 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 so that you would know that something was missing or a little 
printer sigla, like just some little weird doodad to tell you that would tell you the Jewish reader, Oh, wink, wink. You know, you're supposed to say something here, but we're not allowed to print it. And some Sidurim just did not print it at all. The Sephardim, the Mizrahim never lost it in their Sidurim, right? Because the German uh, thing, um, I'll get to that, Michael, when Michael wants to know, so how did it get back there? So the German thing only gover- ended up spreading and governing to Jews of Europe. It never spread to the Jews of the Arab countries. So, you know, like Persians, Moroccans, their Sidurim never lost this sentence. Okay. Um, and what I don't know is if you were a rank-and-file Orthodox Jew in Poland in the year 1930, or in New York in the year 1960, did you know this by oral tradition? And did you insert the line which you had learned orally? Or was it just absent? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that in American printed Orthodox Sidurim, it was just absent. There's no ellipsis, there's no brackets, there's no printer signal. It's just gone. Okay. Then it made a return... I think as far as I can tell in the 1970s in Orthodox Sidurim, from the 70s on uh, in Israeli Sidurim first, then in Diaspora Orthodox, in Israeli Orthodox Sidurim first, in Diaspora Sidurim second. Um, this is just a personal opinion. I could be wrong, but I believe this was part of, let me get in trouble, Okay. Mm-hmm. This is part of Israeli Orthodox triumphalism at a certain point. Like, to heck with those Goyim. They can't tell us what to leave out of our Sidur. We can make our own decisions now without much thought to whether we really like or believe in that line or not. It was sort of like Americans who want to go back to the old ways. I just read an article in the paper this morning, some woman who's in North Carolina, Frank Bruni was interviewing people in North Carolina. She was said she wants to go back, back to the constitution, back to an America that has God in everything to which the retort of course is like, no, actually the constitution does not have God in everything. If you would actually read the constitution, but that's people's perception who want to go back to the good old ways, right? So we're going to go back to the good old ways. We're not going to let those Goyim tell us what to say and what not to say. So we're going to say they bow down and worship to emptiness and nothingness because rah-rah. That's my informal opinion. I've never read an article. I'm not going to write that article. Someone can research that. How was the decision made? It was first brought back. By the way, the Renat Yisrael is, just so you know, is not just an Israeli Sidur. It is the Sidur published by the Israeli government Ministry of Religion, which is like a cabinet level, you know, so it, it's sort of like the official Sidur of the Israeli government, so to speak. So the Renat Yisrael brought it back. I can't tell you in exactly what year, 70s or 80s. Um, obviously, Mizrach, you know, Ashkenazim became much, where, much more aware of Mizrahim in Israel once they started paying attention. It never disappeared from the um, Mizrahi Sidurim. And then subsequent to that, it was a readopted in American 
orthodoxy dream. I assume because people visited Israel, their kids went for a year in yeshiva. We learned that this line was restored. This is really original. So we should put it back in our dream. So in, if you read an orthodoxy door, if you look at an orthodoxy door from like an American one from, uh, 1955, let's see, what would that door have been? Birnbaum? I don't know. Birnbaum or something. I'm sure it's not there. Okay. But if you look at contemporary art scroll, Sachs, Koran, um, it's there. Um, so, and Koran is in several, who has, who uses a Koran Sidur if you do hold it up? You know, a lot of people do. Because it has good production values and it's more complete than our conservative Sidur. So have, there are a variety, art, Warren, sorry. Art, yeah, in the art scroll, they have it in parentheses. Correct. So some of them put it in parentheses. Um, in the Koran, the Koran has various editions. One of them is called the Sachs Sidur because it has notes from uh, the late Lord Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I have the following on oral tradition. I probably shouldn't say it on something that's recorded and available on the internet. But I actually interviewed, or I, I, I did a deep dive into the history of the Alain about two years ago because um, someone asked me a question about it. So I spoke to a prominent modern Orthodox rabbi who was prominent enough that he was able to have a conversation with Rabbi Doc, Rabbi, Lord Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Sachs, and said to him before the Sachs Sidur came out, you're not going to put that line back in, are you? Like, we don't believe in that. That's really offensive. And apparently the answer was, well, that's going to be a matter of selling books, meaning no one's going to buy my Sidur. This marks it as a legitimate Orthodox Sidur, having the sentence in it. Now, there's another edition of the of the Koren Sidur, which is called the Soloveitchik edition, which has which is not sanctioned by Rav Soloveitchik because Rav Soloveitchik was dead when it came out. Um, but uh, it has Rav Soloveitchik's notes, footnotes that were put in there by, you know, some of his disciples. And that one has it in parentheses, the Sachs edition does and, not have it in parentheses. The Soloveitchik edition. No, it does. It's, it's, in, it's, in, it's in parentheses now in the Sachs edition. In some edition, just so you know, because I have one where it's not in parentheses. So I have a hardcover one, or a larger hardcover one where it's not in parentheses. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Rav Soloveitchik found this offensive and he said there should be parentheses. So I asked the modern Orthodox rabbi about it. He said, oh, you should talk to my friend so-and-so who works for Korean Publishers uh, distributors in North America. So I called up his friend so-and-so and I said, oh, in the Soloveitchik, it's in parentheses. Does that mean that Rav Soloveitchik was opposed to it? And da, da, da. I thought we'd have a philosophical discussion to which the answer, once again, like Sachs's answer, was a business answer. The answer was, no, there's an Orthodox rabbi in such and such a city who has a big shul who said he was going to order 1,000 copies, but he would only order it and pay for it if we put parentheses around that line to indicate that he disapproves of that line. That's why the parentheses are there. So the parentheses are there or not there, not because of what Rabbi Sachs thought, not because of what Rabbi Soloveitchik thought, um, but rather to let you know this is missing in lots of editions and some people think it should be there. Literarily, it makes more sense, right? 
Thank you for not making us like the other nations, for they bow down to nothingness, while we bow down to the real God. And, of course, for those who are disturbed by what feels like the chauvinistic theological exclusivism of the Aleinu, saying that line makes that much clearer and much harsher, which is why none of the liberal movements have reintroduced that line, even in parentheses, okay? Because we think it's offensive, right? Um, there are enough uh, struggles with the Aleinu, right? Transliterated article says some congregations omit. Yep. So there are enough, there are enough things to struggle with in the Aleinu in terms of its, its uh, what some see as sort of theological triumphalism <clears throat> without adding that sentence, which is really like, you know, there's no, there's no way to, you know, there are certain things we can reinterpret to soften it, right? They bow down, the other nations, they bow down to emptiness and nothingness and that gods that are useless, they pray to gods <laughs> who are useless. You can't reinterpret that line, right? And that's why we, we meaning all conservative reform, Masorti, right? Progressive, Sidurim in the world, as far as I know, none of them has ever reintroduced that line. Even though in the Orthodox Sidurim from the 70s on, it has migrated back in, sometimes in parentheses, sometimes not. I'm going to pause here. Larry first. You have a hand up. You've been patient. Yeah, I want to just uh, reiterate what you said or support what you said. And you were a little bit tentative. This was an issue of triumphalism. This is a political right-wing move. This statement is not only theological, it's political, sociological. And there was a lot, I remember um, there being a variety of of incidents that I was aware of, one of which was when, um, I don't remember who it was, it might have been a a child of one of our members uh, came to our shul, Marashad Avraham in in Israel, it's a shul of, was a shul of of Reuven Hammer and David Golinkin. Um, and Benji Siegel and other notables and introduced that line, which was, which, which we never did. Um, and neither Diane and I remember what happened, but we both remember the incident. Um, and it caused a big, uh, a big hubbub or a big, a big, fu- a big furor. Mm-hmm. Like that too, uh, like in the prayer for Israel. And also Diane mentions in the prayer for Israel, or in the prayer for the soldiers, for the Chayalim, the prayer, yeah, the prayer for the Chayalim. Yeah. Yeah, the there's a, a, line. there's a, a line similar that causes a lot of political rifts. So, mm-hmm. so I'm just uh, prayer is not only spiritual, it's theological, sociological, and it is political. I will let that comment stand. Thank you, Larry, for commenting. <laughs> yeah. The call on the field is confirmed. <laughs> well, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just saying, you know, I'm saying Larry is stating his opinion and I will not state an opinion about his opinion because I'm trying to just teach Sidur. OK, um, my, the thing that I did say was my hypothesis about, like, why would it have come back into Israeli Sidurim when Ashkenazim did not say that, you know, Ashkenazim got along fine without that line for, you know, over two and a half centuries like no one no one at a certain point no one said boo hoo hoo um although maybe they did maybe the sidurim 
from the 1800s that had the ellipsis printed, you know, and again, was there, I don't, it'd be interesting to know, you'd have to talk to some older people, you know, was, did anyone actually have oral masoret? There's a line that we say here that we're not allowed to print, but I want you to know the line and to say it. I actually don't know anything about that. That would be interesting to know. Uh, Warren. Oh, Warren, you had your, I think you had your hand up, but then you went off camera. Um, okay, well, I, okay, I'm not saying I like this line, uh-huh. uh, but I think it could be interpreted uh, to uh, be a criticism of materialism. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Ow. And, uh, well, just that uh, uh, I think, I always think idolatry is basically a metaphor for materialism. I mean, you're, you're, you're worshiping material object, material objects. And uh, so I think it can be sort of reinterpreted that way. In fact, I think I really, I think it's important to talk about the, the bigger uh, subject of why um, we are considered different than the other nations uh, spiritually. Okay. Do we have and I think that's a very important issue because, you know, I, I, there's a lot of beautiful spirituality outside of Judaism. Uh-huh. And uh, so what is Judaism, how is Judaism's Jewish spirituality different than non-Jewish spirituality? Okay. And I think this, this yeah. prayer raises that issue. Okay, good. So I want to say three, oh, I want to wrap up soon. So I want to say three quick things in response. One, that last question that you raised uh, is how is Jewish spirituality different from others is a big question. And because I'm not sure we're going to get to that in this class, just because we're focusing on Sidur, and that's a whole other class unto itself. Number two, your reinterpretation that it's not about other gods they worship, but other things that they worship, that you're, you're interpreting idolatry to mean materialism. Um, I think I, I ag- agree with you. That's how I say the Alenu. That's how I understand the Alenu. Um, many other people do. I think that is a modern reinterpretation, and we should be aware of that. We should cop to that, by which I mean, I don't believe the author of the line meant that. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.